1: treating our mind is not just working on our mind and our thoughts, but it's also our gut health and the direct connection between that system and our thoughts.
2: Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. My name is Sam Webb and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. What's going on, guys? Welcome back onto the podcast. We're so stoked to be here, guys. I'm so stoked to be here with you. I uh, thank you for joining me again on the podcast, listening into our guests. I hope over the weeks and months that you guys have been tuning in, you've been learning a lot. To anyone who's a new listener, I hope that you gain a lot from these podcasts. I hope that they're able to help guide you in one way or another in your life. And we always say welcome to the Living Community. Wherever you're from, no matter what part of the world, uh, we hope you're well. And we want you to keep living and remember, obviously, that it ain't weak to speak. I'm so excited for today's guest because... He's a friend. Uh, His name is Simon Hill. I was uh, fortunate enough to connect with Simon a few years ago. He's also a Bondi local, so I lived in Bondi at the time. I was on his hugely popular podcast called Plant Proof, which he's the founder of, and the blog with the same name. But to give you a bit of backstory for those of you who don't know who Simon Hill is, he's a nutritionist, he's a qualified physiotherapist. But on top of you know, all of his formal education, Simon really spends a lot of time deciphering, you know, science and evidence and studies so that he can break down how to fuel your body to promote longevity and to reduce, you know, chance of developing diseases, minimizing stress and stuff like that. But while also simultaneously achieving your health and fitness goals that you might be writing down or working towards. He's a very, very fascinating guy. He focuses on the science and the evidence, which I love because at the end of the day, I guess data doesn't lie. But outside of all that, Simon is the plant-based food contributor to Chris Hemsworth's fitness app center. And in 2019, Simon opened up a plant-based restaurant in Bondi called Eden. So if you haven't checked it out go and check it out a great guy can't wait for him to be on this podcast there's so many so many insights and he's had the you know the luck and the chances of speaking to so many great guests on his podcast from all around the world with such amazing and fascinating backgrounds so the guy's like an encyclopedia when it comes to talking around you know nutrition and health and he's a vegan himself But we certainly don't talk just about his work as a veganism, so to speak. But we talk about, you know, his new book, which came out on May 4th, called The Proof is in the Plants. And uh, I want to talk about how food can really impact our day-to-day lives, our health and fitness goals, you know, how it impacts our relationships and how you can tell, believe it or not, by looking at your own poo feces, if what you're putting into your body is healthy or not. But you've got to listen into this podcast. It's an absolute ripper Don't forget to share the podcast. If you like it, feel free to drop us a message. Tell us what guests you want us to hunt down. Any feedback for the show is always welcomed. But that's enough from me. Let's get straight onto it. Well, I'm joined by, I'm looking at him right now. He looks like he's sitting in a, uh, what's that, like a cafe or a retreat, mate? Where are you? Welcome onto the podcast, firstly, Simon. It's a real pleasure to have you on here, mate. It's been a long time coming.
1: Great to be here. I have an enormous amount of gratitude for what you do. So I'm super excited. I'm on a retreat in Noosa or close to Noosa. So I've been up here for five days. And as you know, I live in Bondi where you used to reside as well. But yeah, up here for a week conducting, helping facilitate a retreat, health and and wellness retreat. So coming to the end of that, but yeah, it's been an awesome week, man. Just seeing the group come together as a community usually happens by like day three, four yeah, we've got a couple of days left and everyone's already like a big family. So the vibes are really, really happy.
2: Yeah. That's great to hear. And talking about a retreat, I've been on one in the past and I know what you're talking about, about, you know, when everyone first gets there, it's like kind of, everyone's a little bit nervous. They don't know anybody. It's like, they don't really want to step out of their comfort zone, but then it ends when things start getting really, really good almost. Right.
1: Yeah. And that's part of it. I think everyone sort of comes on these retreats for different reasons and A common reason is for some sort of personal growth, and people are looking for more. I think in their life, searching for more and connection with other people helps them identify what it is that they need to work on. And having people from a similar position also becoming vulnerable and talking about what it is they're going through or what they would like to do better, it's what we need. And, you know, when times are tough, and of course, the last year and a half has been very stressful for. All involved, all of us, no matter where we're from in different ways, somewhere along the spectrum, we've all been impacted from physical point of view, but also, of course, from mental health point of view. So I've really noticed because I've done these retreats, you know, usually two a year. And I've noticed that this year in particular, I've seen some really nice transformations even within this week. And as you say, you come to the end of the week and everyone's gelling, and it's almost like, all right, we get another week together, but people have developed connections and will go away and hopefully maintain those connections. So, yeah, it's been really beautiful to see, man.
2: Mate, it's awesome to hear. And, you know, obviously the world and everybody in every corner of this life is probably going through something at some stage, whether it's through the pandemic or prior or even right now that might be completely different from that. What's the major focuses? for you guys on the retreats i know there's so many retreats out there like do you guys have like a niche in terms of what you're focusing mainly on and how you're helping people transform
1: we have a very big physical component to this as a strength and conditioning component but we make it really clear that it's not about performance this retreat even the physical exercise we do is very mindset focused and we're here to build resilience and also really get people to tap into their mind and start thinking a little bit more deeply around the thoughts we've had sessions on you know negative self-talk and going into that spiral of comparing ourselves to other people and reframing things so we've spent a lot of time working you know with people in group scenario around goal setting but also a lot of individual one-on-one breaking away there's a really great group of trainers up here. So I'm helping facilitate it. The founder of this retreat is a great friend of mine from Melbourne. I grew up you know, with him in the similar circle. So really this retreat, even though it is marketed as very much a fitness sort of experience, it's the mental aspect, which is by far most important. It's not if you do your personal best deadlift or if your running time improves or or things like that. So, like we've had lots of people crying and lots of breakthrough moments. And, you know, there's been some really hard and sad conversations through the week as well. And, you know, they've been needed and necessary part of this process. And there's been people on the retreat who have done things on the retreat. And I don't want to go into details so much, but that has left them feeling very disappointed. And like they haven't been making the most of this retreat, but then that was the experience that they actually needed. And we are trying to help people reframe that. So they're walking away from this retreat, hopefully with some more tools to help improve their mindset and start reframing things in their life. And when, when we can do that, things just feel better. They become a lot easier everything that we're we're trying to achieve in our life becomes easier
2: sometimes it's easier said than done though right i mean it takes a lot of trial and error it takes a lot of research in your own life to find out the things that make you tick the things that trigger you and the things that i guess probably aren't working so well and how you change them sometimes can seem easy but i guess the challenge for a lot of people and you know myself included in the past is actually Staying accountable to that and pulling through to the very end, like it's sometimes very easy to start something, but finishing can be where it's really, really challenging. You know, like staying committed to that outcome can be very challenging.
1: Yeah. The million dollar question is, how can you implement these things in a sustainable manner? You know, and we'd all be lying if we said we've got the perfect mindset all the time. That's unrealistic. It doesn't exist, right? But I think something that's really important that has worked for me is you mentioned commitment. And for a long time, my commitment meant how I was sort of perceived by others. And it was a commitment to other people. And I hadn't really connected with the promises I was making to myself and the commitment to myself. And I see a lot of people on this retreat here who are in their early 20s that actually remind me a lot of myself and, they break every promise that they're making to themselves. And I think that's something that's very, very important is keeping ourselves honest. And if we can't hold commitment to ourselves, how can we expect to hold commitment to the people around us? So a lot of our conversations here have been really stripping things right back and less about the extrinsic, what are other people thinking about me and getting people to focus on themselves and and what it is that gives them passion in their lives and what are their values and beliefs and how can we start begin to align those actions with those values and beliefs.
2: Yeah, there's so much to be learnt from going away on retreats or anything that's outside of people's comfort zones. I mean, going on something like that can be so scary for so many people. Where does nutrition fall into place? In conversations at retreats, in conversations at the gym conversations in your life i mean it's a big part of it where does that come into play here
1: well i think it's part of self love when i look at it from a big picture point of view nourishing your body with foods that are going to make you feel better on on the day to day but also for the long term so you're playing the short term but also the long term and science is very clear in terms of what does a dietary pattern look like that is going to have us operating best in our everyday, but also help protect us from chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, be it heart attack or stroke, or type two diabetes, various cancers, dementia, things like that. And I think when you start to take that seriously, you are showing yourself love in a very sort of fundamental way. We put food on our plate three times a day, plus you know, snacks. And each time we have an opportunity to really nourish our body or we can eat foods that are not so healthy and are not associated with such good outcomes so there's a mindset thing in that in how important do you consider your health from a very fundamental point of view you know i sometimes refer to our body as our spacesuit you know you you want to nourish that you want your spacesuit that's holding your soul to be thriving and when it is that's only going to benefit everything else you do in your life be it sport or be it your connections and conversations with your family be it achieving your business goals whatever it is it's one of the foundations like the foundations of a house you know the non-negotiables that i think if you're really really loving yourself you're thinking about it and i could add other things into that like mindfulness and mindfulness practices i could add hydration at the most fundamental level These are things that often we neglect, but they're very easy wins. And if we don't set these easy wins up in our lifestyle, then of course we're going to find ourselves in a position where we're more likely to suffer from mental health problems. You know, we're not ticking off the basics in our life sleep, nutrition, hydration, mindfulness. These are pillars of being a healthy, thriving person. So, we can go into specifics around food and mental health if you want. There are some very interesting studies. There's two I write about in the book where they actually put around 160 odd people uh, in a randomized controlled trial onto a plant based diet. And these trials were about 12 weeks. One of them was about 12 weeks long. And by the end of the trial, they had significantly improved self esteem and productivity. So there is science, I wish there was more, and I think there will be more science coming, specific science on mental health and hopefully long-term studies looking at it as well. But what we have right now at a fundamental level is, yes, eating more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds and less ultra-processed foods in particular, which make up, how's this for a statistic? ultra-processed foods, which are really refined. A lot of the nutrition's stripped away. A lot of these foods will add salt, oil, and sugar, and other additives. They make up almost 50% of the average person's calories in Australia. In America, it's 60%. Just think about that for a moment. It's ultra-processed packaged food. Can
2: you give me an example? What are we talking about? Like packets of chips, canned food.
1: Biscuits, cookies certain types of cakes think about all those products with super super long shelf lives bright packaging the stuff that jumps out and leaps out to kids usually in the middle aisles of the supermarket not so much around the fresh food area those are the foods it also includes ultra processed meats as well so your salamis and your sandwich deli meats
2: okay so does processed food and preservatives are they generally a hand in hand to not a healthy choice Or does sometimes, can you have a processed or a preservative in a food and it actually is good for you?
1: Yeah. So we should add a bit of a caveat here. Processed in and of itself does not mean harmful. For example, peanut butter, you would actually consider to be processed because the nut would be a whole food, right? The term ultra-processed foods is really referring to foods where we have refined and stripped away like fiber and vitamins and minerals. And then we have added salt, oil, and sugar on top of that. And we're really creating this hyper palatable food that has a bliss point. And the food scientists work to this bliss point. And that bliss point really exploits our biology. So if we were to think for a moment of our ancestors in the savannah in Africa, back when there was no supermarkets and food was quite scarce, if you came across a lot of calories, it made sense to binge eat on those. That made sense for our ancestors because they were in times of food scarcity and famine. You would put on some fat and that fat's protective. That will help you survive and you can draw down on that should you need to. We still have that same biology today, but we're in an environment where food scientists have created hyperpalatable energy dense foods that are not great for our health, any aspect of our health, including mental health, that when we bite into them, they don't fill us up. And we just keep craving more and more and more. And we know this from studies. There was a great study out two years ago, a researcher, Kevin Hall. He actually got people into a metabolic ward. So in a hospital to conduct this study. And he did that so that he could track every bit of food that went in their mouth. much more reliable than trying to conduct something out in the wild with people going home because they might sneak food in and you can't track it. And what he wanted to look at was if people eat ultra-processed foods versus unprocessed foods, but we match for carbohydrates, we match for protein, we match for fat, and we match for fiber, and we match for salt, and we match for sugar. He matched all of those. So the ultra processed foods and the processed meals were matched for all of those things. The only difference was that one was ultra processed and one was an unprocessed whole food meal. Every participant did each diet for two weeks and you would cross over. Some did one diet, diet A, and then diet B. Some did diet B and then diet A. And he said each day they provided them with the meals with an excess of total calories. And he said, just eat until you're satisfied, right? When people were eating the ultra-processed meals, they took an extra 500 calories per day to feel just as full. 500 calories per day to feel just as full. Three and a half thousand calories extra per week. And by the end of the study, just in a two-week period, during the ultra-processed food diet, people gained one kilogram of weight. And in the unprocessed, people lost a kilogram of weight. So there was a two kilogram body fat difference just in two weeks. And we have a lot of research to sort of explain what's going on here. Two key things. One is ultra processed foods, you can eat a lot faster. Can you imagine right now, pretend you've got like a Mars bar or a Snickers bar. Okay. And then imagine like a big sort of Buddha bowl of plants,
2: lentils, plants. Yep, yep, yep.
1: And think about the mm-hmm. time it's going to take you to eat those two meals. You're going to get through the Mars bar or the Snickers bar.
2: I'll crush four Mars bars before you finish your Buddha bowl.
1: That's right. So it's a calorie per bite thing, which causes you to eat these ultra processed foods much faster. And as you, because you're eating them faster, there's less time for your hunger signals to kick in and to say, "I'm actually, I'm actually quite full." That's the first thing. The second is that. They matched fiber between these two diets. And the reason they did that is because we know fiber fills people up. So they wanted to see: well, is there something else in ultra processed foods other than fiber, the fact that they lack fiber responsible for people overeating them. The hypothesis from this study is that you can't just mimic the fiber in plants. You can't just add 10 grams of fiber to an ultra processed food and expect it to be the same thing. It's very different and the reason is that fiber is particularly important for a number of reasons. But one of the biggest, most important parts of the fiber for us and our health is that we can almost imagine it as fertilizer. We have bacteria in our gut. We live in a very symbiotic relationship with it. When we eat well, it thrives, the microbiome and the bacteria thrive. And when they are eating well, they reward us. They produce compounds that reward us both locally in the gut, improved gut health, but also systemically. And one of those things systemically is inflammation, which we know is very associated with depression and anxiety. Now, the reason I say you can't mimic the fiber in plants by just putting some fiber in ultra-processed food is that all of those bacteria that I just mentioned, they're all different species. And just like imagine all your family at a table or all your friends, everyone has slightly different taste buds. Our bacteria are very similar. While some will prefer a certain type of fiber, let's say from asparagus, they'll eat that and produce healthy compounds for us to benefit from. Other bacteria will like the fiber in tomatoes or in kale or in potato. So the researchers from this study essentially believe that one of the other reasons why there was such a difference in calorie consumption was that when you're eating these whole plant foods, you're getting a variety of fiber feeding different types of bacteria. And here's the key thing. One of the things that those bacteria do when we eat is they produce hormones. Hormones get produced as a result of these bacteria eating the fiber. And these hormones act as appetite suppressants. They literally drive our hunger down. So if we're taking a shortcut and eating foods that are missing this diversity of plants and all these different types of fiber, we're not getting the same change in hunger. Our body's not saying you're full, you're satisfied until much later. You know, moral of the story there is there's no shortcut to fiber or with many supplements, in fact, and nothing can really replace. As much as we all want absolutes, you know, and we want that quick fix. Nothing can replace a diversity of plants in the diet.
2: Amazing. And I know your background, you've done a lot of research over the years. You've done research studies. You've spoken to people from all around the world on the Plant Proof Podcast who specialize in certain parts of the human body. Where I'm really interested in, in figuring this out is we talk about ultra-processed food. Then we talk about, and I hear you saying you know, a few times there, about the importance and the fundamental foundations for plants and that variety of plants as a supplement for our bodies and how necessary that is for us to build a sustainable life from mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, and all of the above. You're a big bloke. I've seen you in the gym. You're very muscly. You're, you're well-built. There's no doubt about that. If we're looking at a plant-based diet, how do you and where do you get most of your protein from? And how does that work for you, mate? How, how have you been able to do that for yourself?
1: People might be interested, I guess, before I spin into the protein side of things. Yeah. You know, my book, The Proof is in the Plants, one of the things I'm trying to do is help everyone clear some confusion and understand what a healthy dietary pattern is. I think maybe top line, defining plant-based is important here. Because often that definition is used differently on social media and in the research. And what I've really tried to do in my book is separate different pillars that affect people's choices about food. And what I mean by that is I speak about planetary health in the book and I speak about science of human health, but I separate them out and speak about them independently. And then I have a conversation about them together. And the reason for that is, I think if we're talking about nutrition and human health, we shouldn't be blurring the science with other areas. We should just be looking at what does the science say is the optimal diet for us to eat from a human health point of view before we start jumping on to other considerations outside of that. And my thesis in the book is that we very much all want an absolute answer and we love quick fixes. And I'll put my hand up. We want that magic Quick pill. And, and really, you know, when I wrote my book, I thought, does the world really need another diet book? Like this. How many diet books are there? You know, head to your, your bookstore at the airport or in your local community and go to the health section, and you'll see. There's new diet books all the time. And, you know, often these are sort of promising, you know, the magic bullet and some sort of new panacea or quick way to hack yourself to health. And I outlined in my introduction that if you're looking for that, this is not the book for you. You'll get that in the first couple paragraphs. So people that are in bookstores that read the first page, they might be able to realize it's not for them. But if someone's gifted it, they might get a little shock. But if you are looking for what the science actually says, and you are willing to understand that even though we want this black and white absolute, there actually is a bit of gray. There's a bit of nuance and there's a bit to be explored. And I believe if you you understand that, you are then immunized against misinformation. You are so in control of your health. The next time a crazy headline comes up or your friend sends you something, you don't feel derailed. Like all of a sudden you need to change your diet to the next diet. You understand the basic principles of nutrition and a little bit of the nuance. And then you use that and you adapt to a dietary pattern that works for you in a sustainable way. Now, when we look at nutrition science. And question I often get is, what's the best diet? What's the most optimal diet? And my answer to that is, even though we've constructed these dietary brands and we see different people championing different dietary brands, these are sort of constructs that we've come up with. Science is much more nuanced. And instead of there being one single diet that is, the absolute best diet, what we have is a framework. We have a set of characteristics. And that set of characteristics describes what a healthy diet is. It's a diet that is low in saturated fat, low in trans fats, low in ultra-processed foods, rich in fiber, and rich in plant protein. Now, here's the thing. You can achieve that in a number of ways. It may or may not include some animal products. However, naturally, because the foods that are rich in saturated fats tend to be animal products, mainly red meat and dairy, achieving this theme requires a plant-predominant dietary pattern. And so my thesis in the book is not about a plant-exclusive or a vegan diet being the panacea and the ultimate way to eat for human health. In fact, it's about explaining a theme and then allowing
0: One size fits all seems
2: like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Wing people to determine what is the best for them that they will be able to adhere to for the long term. Do you have any questions on the human health section?
2: Can you share with us some of the information that is probably top line that is definitely misinformation that we must either look out for, or can you just strike that on the head right now for once and for all?
1: Yep, let's do it. So the way that I wrote the book was the first part of the book is diet of confusion. In that section, I talk about all of the different sources of confusion. Part two is diet of science. This is where I go into the evidence that supports what I just said, the characteristics of an optimal diet. And I really walk you through why that is the evidence-based position and give you the science so you can see it and 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 explain it in a way that I believe is accessible. Part three of the book is what you're talking about. It's around, okay, well, if I'm going to make this shift, I've got a number of questions. I've heard this, this, and this, be it about protein, be it about soy, be it about calcium, be it about certain nutrients, whatever it is, and I address all of that. Let's take protein, for example. So we know quite clearly from huge studies, be it observational or randomized controlled trials, that when you replace animal protein with plant protein, people do better. They have lower risk of nearly all of the major chronic diseases and they're living longer. People who are eating more plant protein tend to live longer and it's consistent with large populations around the world who show great longevity. They eat predominantly plant protein. Based diets full of plant protein now one of the questions is that commonly comes up and I understand why and it's a valid question and I, I had this can you get enough protein from plants and the answer is yes
2: and is it the same protein is it just as effective
1: so this is a great question there's 20 amino acids and these amino acids are the building blocks of protein So the body uses these amino acids, think of them as a small molecule, and it puts them together into a chain, like a bike chain. When it creates that chain, it creates any of up to 30,000 different proteins in the body, right? But all of these proteins are a different combination of these 20 amino acids in some various sequence, right? Now, nine of those are considered essential amino acids. You would have heard of those before, right? The essential amino acids are the one our bodies cannot make. We have to get them, through our diet, through our nutrition in some way. Now, there is a huge amount of misunderstanding about plants and essential amino acids. And, and you may have even heard this before. Often we hear, well, plants are missing essential amino acids or plants are incomplete protein. You may have heard that.
2: Definitely heard that plenty of times before, yeah.
1: Or that soy and quinoa are the only plants that contain nine essential amino
2: acids. Or that if you get soy protein, for example, it isn't good for you. You've obviously heard that plenty of times.
1: So let's put a pin in that and make sure we hit that. I want to hit the nine essential amino acids first. Here's the thing. All nine essential amino acids, you know where they start? They all start in plants. That's where they start, in nature. They start in plants, all nine essential amino acids. And here's the thing. All plants contain all nine essential amino acids. Let me say that again. All plants contain all nine essential amino acids. Every single one, not just quinoa and soy. Here's what we need to understand. Some plants will contain a low amount or a less than optimal amount of a certain essential amino acid. But this doesn't matter and let me explain why. When I say less than optimal amount of a certain amino acid, it's only less optimal if Sam eats that particular food, that one food for all of his calories in a day. I'll give you an example, rice. Rice has a great amino acid profile except for one amino acid, lysine. If you were to eat Two and a half thousand, three thousand 3,000 calories a day for you from just rice. You didn't eat anything else at all. You would fall short on that one essential amino acid lysine. That's true. But the reason why that definition of incomplete was ever relevant is not for you, Sam, because you don't eat like that. It was designed for developing countries where food is scarce where someone may only have access to rice and it becomes important. But if you're eating with just a tiny bit of diversity, not even having to focus in single meals, if you're just eating with a tiny bit of diversity over the day, you will see every single of the nine essential amino acids from just plants you get in absolute spades. So that's the first thing. Unless you're doing something silly, like just eating rice for all of your calories, then you should not be worried about missing out on any essential amino acids. The second question that often comes up is digestibility. Are plant proteins as digestible as animal protein? Now, there was some early research that was done in rats first and then in pigs. And what they did was they fed animal protein to the animals and then also legumes and measured the digestion. and the results showed that animal protein was quite significantly better, better absorbed, more digestible. But there's some problems with this that since we've learned, show us that this gap in digestibility is not the same as what it is in humans. So firstly, the rats have a very different digestive system to humans, as do pigs. But secondly, and more importantly, is these studies were feeding these animals raw legumes. And yes, if you were to go out and eat raw beans, then your ability to digest not just protein, but many of the nutrients in those foods is going to be subpar, or it'll be suboptimal. But now we know from human studies, and there's been a few studies that have come out that suggest the difference between animal and plant protein bioavailability is the term often used, is probably only a few percent. Now, in my book, I actually allow a 10%. I add 10%. So if someone is a plant-based athlete and they're wanting to maximize lean muscle and recovery and strength, instead of aiming for 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram, which is the threshold that you need to hit if you're sort of wanting to fully optimize, I suggest adding 10% for someone who's a plant-based athlete and going for 1.8 grams per kilo or around about that area. And that is a bit of an insurance policy to potentially buffer any small difference in digestibility. Okay, But that's very easily done. And I show lots of examples in the book of how you can achieve that. It's not hard at all. So that's protein. You mentioned soy. The soy male hormone question comes up a lot. And I posted recently, the very best science that we have is a 2019 meta-analysis of randomized controlled feeding trials, of 41 feeding trials. So what this study did, a meta-analysis is a study that summarizes the results of many single studies looking at the same thing to see if when you add in all these different studies from all around the world looking at the same thing, what's the combined effect? It's considered more reliable than just going and looking at one study in isolation. And they put 41 of these clinical feeding trials together. And these are trials, different durations, some are four weeks, you know, up to a year. And what they're looking at is feeding men, this was just men, feeding men soy and also phytoestrogens, which are a molecule found within soy that are thought to be the component of soy that affects hormones. And they measured testosterone, not just total, also free testosterone. And they measured different types of estrogen as well in all of these studies. And there was no effect from the consumption of soy at all on male hormone levels. So the evidence that people often point to though, Sam, to suggest that there is say an estrogenic effect is often what you hear, which is like a bit of a a feminizing effect. The evidence that they often point to is one of two things. One is a rat studies. And these rat studies, they feed isoflavones, those phytoestrogens that I just mentioned, they get an isolated form of those and they feed them to a rat. And the rat has feminizing effects. But here's the thing, the concentration of isoflavones fed to that rat, if you were to, to work that out on a human basis and work out what would the equivalent be, you know, the equivalent ratio of that to the size of, of a rat, it would be significantly more soy products than anyone would ever consume in a day, ever. So you're testing an exposure level that is not transferable to real life in humans. Now, here's the thing. The other science that people will point to other than the rat study is one or two case studies. These are N equal one, one person, where men have consumed around 12 serves of soy a day and had feminizing effects. I don't think we would be recommending uh, 12 serves of anything a day. 12 I'm pretty sure 12 serves of of cow's milk a day would probably cause <laughs> something as well. But the most important take-home message here is dose is always what determines if something is is healthy or not. But also in science, there's an evidence hierarchy. And that evidence hierarchy determines what is the most valid and reliable evidence all the way down to the bottom of this sort of pyramid that is least reliable. And... Sitting at the top is randomized controlled feeding trials. That's where we are in a controlled environment. We feed and we measure exposure. Laboratory studies in animals are right down the bottom because often what we do in animals does not play out in humans. And case studies is even lower because case studies are not controlled. It's just someone coming in and saying, presenting with a certain feminizing effect and then giving you a summary of, of their typical day of eating. It's not a controlled test. What we often see on social media, though, is cherry picking. Instead, ignoring the higher quality evidence at the top and going and grabbing that rat study and using that to claim that soy has a negative effect on hormones. And it becomes very difficult for the layperson to tease out on social media, who can we trust? and is the the science that they're using to form that opinion to be trusted is it credible
2: i love how you attack everything with an evidence-based and looking at it from a factual point of view it's inspiring to listen to because i think a lot of life especially when we talk about mental health and what the research is telling us it's important to give people the right information rather than speculating on things that may or may not be true and correct. So I'm really glad that you've been able to hit home on that for all of us. You know, one thing, I'm, mate, I'm really interested to find out about, can you tell by someone's poo feces the type of diet they're eating or how healthy they actually are, or is that impossible? That's an
1: amazing question. So just looking at poo, there's a Bristol stool chart where your poo will be given a number. I think it's between one and six. And around three is considered to be normal and and healthy. And this stool chart will will help you, I guess, identify at a high level if you're having any digestive problems or if there's anything that you, you may need to work on. But what's more specific is the research on the microbiome and our, our ability to analyze poo today has advanced enormously. And we can look at how healthy someone's microbiome is by analyzing their poo. And we can see if there's inflammatory bacteria, if there is an abundance of healthy bacteria. There's actually a really great study, Professor Rob Knight, widely considered as one of the leading microbiome experts in the world. And this kind of feeds back to what we were talking about earlier. So, the more diverse range of bacteria that are in your gut that's reflective of a very healthy flourishing sort of ecosystem in there and he identified that they looked at over 10,000 stool samples people sent their poo in right it's like citizen scientists They were participating in this huge gut project, and it included Australians. It included a lot of people from the UK, and it included a lot of people from America. And they were able to identify something that was very interesting compared to people who ate less than 10 plants, unique plants a week, less than 10 unique plants a week. People that ate over 30 had significantly more diverse microbiome species more diversity in their microbiome, which is reflective of a healthier gut.
2: And a healthier gut is directly linked with a healthier mindset. And Absolutely. And there's a lot of science around that too, isn't there Simon?
1: There is a direct connection via the vagus nerve to the brain. And there's also indirect connections between gut and brain through neurotransmitters. And the re- Before I spoke about the bacteria, they're releasing these healthy compounds or they're releasing compounds which then result in the production of other compounds. And some of these are neurotransmitters, feel-good molecules. So having a diverse microbiome is extremely important for our mental health. And you'll see often people with dysbiosis, so a state of imbalance in the microbiome when it's not doing so well, and there is not as many good bacteria and a few more of the more harmful bacteria, there's a a strong correlation with conditions like IBS. And there is a very strong correlation between IBS and depression, IBS and anxiety. And these are very interconnected. So treating our mind is not just about working on our mind and our thoughts, but it's also about our gut health and the direct connection between that part of our body, that system and our thoughts.
2: What I want to know though is like, you know, for me, if I pick up a chocolate bar, for example, right, or have a bag of M&Ms. I get a reward system. It feels like my brain gets something that's like a reward. Whereas if I have a, a bowl of brown rice and tuna, it doesn't quite feel the same. And I'm sure people listening can definitely, everyone can resonate with me when I say that. And I guess there's like a feedback loop or a reward loop that allows people to want to be not addicted to this type of stuff, but allow them to be hooked on things like sugar and this ultra-processed food. Why is that?
1: That's called hedonic hunger, which is when you're yeah, you'll crave foods even when when you actually don't require energy, these types of foods. But what you're describing is instant gratification. It's an instant gratification. And we're very much trained today to be drawn to instant gratification. And again it goes back to what I was saying earlier around the ancestral piece. Being drawn to a quick calorie dense foods made sense for our ancestors. I would argue that instant gratification comes at a cost because it spoils our ability to experience delayed gratification which is often needed to achieve, you know, bigger sort of longer term goals in our life right there's that famous experiment the marshmallow experiment this is back in the stanford university experiment and they got a group of kids and they put one marshmallow down in front of each kid they said to them look if you can wait 15 minutes and not eat that marshmallow we'll come back and give you another one and of course some kids just ate the first one they couldn't wait you know the instant gratification got the better of them and then some kids could they could delay. They were able to, to sense that it was worthwhile to wait. And they were able to delay. And, and those kids then, when they were tracked over decades, ended up doing better in, in their life and, and less at risk of, of various diseases and things like that. This is something I think about all the time. We grab that Mars bar for that instant hit. And what we're doing there is we're choosing our, that instant feeling. We're prioritizing that over our long-term health. We're prioritizing that over the increased risk of heart disease and the increased chance that we'll have a heart attack in 20, 30 years time. And one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is how can we get people to delay their gratification more when it comes to food to set up these healthy habits and not just be grabbing and searching for that instant.
2: What are some really easy healthy habits that anyone can sort of employ in their life because I know it's easy to walk down an aisle in a grocery store and buy the bag of chips or grab that bar of chocolate or you know grab that unhealthy loaf of bread I mean how can someone listening to this podcast right now employ some really simple changes in their dietary lives to help them live better and at least start that new behavior change in their life.
1: I mean, one of the the real motivators for people is actually, and and I'm trying to help people make changes before they experience this, but sadly is pain. It's a family member who gets terribly sick or sadly they lose someone to a heart attack or they have a heart attack or a stroke themselves. And then they're super dialed in and motivated. They have a burning desire to better look after themselves. And I would encourage people not to wait for pain. Don't wait for pain to make these changes because we have the information now that can actually help you. The other important thing here is it's not about what you're giving up and the sacrifice. I don't want you to think about, oh, the, I can't eat M&Ms and, and, and the sacrifice made there. What you're replacing it with also needs to be really enjoyable and it will be. There's a lot of flavors and foods out there to go and experiment with. And I found, Sam, in my own changing of my diet, that I opened my eyes up to an incredible amount of flavor and have found this new love for food. And now where I sit, where I sit, I get instant gratification from a very, very healthy snack or a healthy Buddha bowl in the same way that I previously would have from a Mars bar. So I think it's important to kind of reframe it of you're sort of going to be missing out because you're not. You're going to make changes in your life. You will fall in love with new foods that just happen to be healthier. That's the goal. It's not about living your life without joy and satisfaction. Food is to be loved and to be enjoyed. And that will happen. And that is on offer if you want it. So you can still have love and joy with the meals that you're eating and also be protecting the long-term at the same time. So I would try and reframe it with someone to that. And then my big thing is go slow and go low and don't put too much pressure on yourself. Simple swaps, I think, are, are the best way for people to start making changes. It can be very overwhelming to just overnight and it can work for some people. There are some people who overnight, for whatever reason, they're able to just completely change their lifestyle. But for most people, I find it's about stepping it out very slowly. And when you when you do that and you get a few of these like small wins where you make small changes and and it feels good and it tastes good, and you're like, okay, I can do that, then you're building confidence in the process and you may feel compelled, to make another swap and make another swap and you know doing that is going to hopefully set you up with something that is more sustainable into the long term rather than something that is just a two-week type cleanse which then you know sees you revert back to your previous lifestyle
2: Exactly. And that's what happens, I feel, from where I sit and what I hear. It's a fad that might last for a 30 or these challenges, you know, that promote these small changes, but they're not necessarily lifelong behavioral changes. What's your go to? What's your go to meal?
1: I do a really, really good spaghetti bolognese. I loved spaghetti bolognese with mincemeat before I sort of changed my diet up. And then I was able to recreate that experience using a mixture of walnuts, mushrooms, and brown lentils, and really working in spices and herbs. And that's the key as well. And and I get this all the time. People message me and say, geez, tofu is very bland. And I have to laugh because it is like, tofu. if you bite into a piece of plain tofu, you're not exactly going to flavor town. But here's the thing you're not going to flavor town if you bite into a piece of just plain chicken and you've done nothing with it. Imagine biting into a chicken breast without any sauce or marinade or herbs or spices. There's not a whole lot of flavor going on in there, right? So you have to treat it very similar to how you would prepare chicken or you know whatever animal product it is that you've been working with. Usually there's some form of seasoning or spices or marinade And fortunately, foods like tofu or tempeh, they are like sponges. So the great thing is they will take on that flavor. And that's something that I just really want people to understand is a lot of your experience with food right now is actually not necessarily the animal protein that is bringing the flavor. It's everything around it. Even imagine sushi. Now, fish has a texture. It has a texture 100%. A lot of the flavor that you're getting when you bite into that Californian sushi roll is the seaweed, the ginger, the wasabi, and the soy sauce. In that scenario, you bro- you work in those flavors and you know you're you're having the exact same experience so understanding that you know working with your favorite meals that you create right now is a great starting point just look at those and and go is there one or two of these i could make plant based and it's most likely going to be a simple swap of one or two ingredients and that keeps it super simple because you don't have to go out and learn you know huge new recipes and you can work those in get really confident with them decide if you want to make you know another step
2: well said simon hill well said we could speak for hours i love everything that you're up to you're doing amazing things you obviously got a book coming out on may 4th the proof is in the plants where can people find that mate
1: so it will may 4th be in all bookstores across australia be it uh you know Dimmicks or reddings or booktopia and if you're in america it will It'll actually be on shelf later in the year, so the best place to buy it for any international listeners for now is Book Depository, their website, and they do free shipping globally. That's awesome.
2: And what about you, mate? Where where can people find you if they want to learn more, listen to your podcast? Where is the best places to point people to you?
1: At Plant underscore Proof, uh, and then yeah, on the podcast, which is just the Plant Proof podcast. Be great to have you joining those conversations for sure. And, and and Sam Sam was on the show back in uh must have been twenty eighteen almost.
2: Yeah, it was a couple of years ago, man. Cause you, you're up to about a hundred and twenty odd podcasts at the moment you've released on your channel. So I think I was a couple at least two or yeah, three.
1: Years. Yeah. So jump back and listen to that one, maybe as the uh the first one you you listen to.
2: It's always a pleasure catching up to you. Hopefully, mate, we can we can speak again soon. Uh, I'd love, you know, as I said, I think there's so many different topics that we could cover here today. I mean, I want to know about everything from what is beyond meat. Why is it so processed? To does people's farts bloody change the way they're eating? You know what I mean? Like, there's so many things I want to learn, mate. So maybe we can link up again in the future. Uh, Simon, it was been a pleasure, man, speaking today, brother. And I appreciate your time, appreciate your, your expertise on this topic and, and all the great work that you're doing uh, for, for people. yourself and for the community with everything that you're
1: up to thanks sam feelings are mutual mate a lot of gratitude for you so appreciate this opportunity and yeah i look forward to to round two sometime in the future
2: i'll hold you to it man thank you again for listening in to another episode of it ain't weak to speak please like share and spread the love to as many people as you can let people know that you subscribe to the show Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, stay well, keep living and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you and have a top day.